Well, good morning, everybody. We're, we're glad that you're here uh, with us today. Um, in case you don't recognize me, my name is Bryce, and I, um, I'm the extra manly version of myself today. <clears throat> uh, but we want to welcome you. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, this first part of our service, this first hour, is centered around worship and communion and our children and uh, doing lots of fun things together. We have a break about halfway through where we then come back after the break and, and study God's Word together. And so this is our introductory thought for today about what we're going to be uh, learning about here this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we'll be reading from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. I don't know if anyone has ever said this to you before, but maybe you've heard these words. It's not always about you, Bryce. You ever heard that said to you? Perhaps. <laughs> Not pro- That's good. That's good. Uh, Carly Simon infamously wrote a song about this very idea. You're so vain, you probably think this song is about you. Well, listen, it had to be about someone, so someone was right there along the line. It's an uncomfortable truth that oftentimes in our lives... We prefer to put ourselves at the center of whatever story it is uh, that we're telling. The story tends to be about us. We make it about us. We put ourselves right smack dab in the middle, and everything that happens in the stories revolves and orbits around who we are, what happened to us, and what effect it had on us. And, And we have a tendency as humans, which I'm pretty sure most of us are, to want to know particularly what the reason is behind something that happens in our lives. We want purpose and meaning to be present in all that we encounter and in all that we do. And if something does not go our way, we want to know why it did not go our way. If we suffer, we want to know that we suffered for a reason. When our life changes course or direction, we look for the meaning behind that change. Because after all, we are the center of the story. So whatever's happening has to have some kind of extra special meaning or purpose because that's how important our lives are. 
In many ways, when we do this, we are looking for our piece of the big story. What's happening in the world? What God is doing in the world? Uh, what's happening just kind of all around us? And maybe I'm wrong about this, which if I am, um, just keep it to yourself. But sometimes, sometimes we would all like to think that the journey we are taking as Christians is somehow uniquely formed for us. We look for personal significance in what we want God to accomplish in or through us. And sometimes, and I'll give us the benefit of the doubt, it's not even something we're necessarily trying to do, but instead of telling God's story, we, are, we, we tell a story that is more about how great we are and God is a part of it. But Paul reminds us of something um, very significant here in Colossians chapter 1. And what he reminds us is this. The story is really not about you. The story's not about me. The story's not about this church. And the story is not about whatever is being accomplished in our lives. The story is about God and about what God has done through his son Jesus. Your part in all of this is the way that Jesus has changed your life. He is the main character of your story, of whatever you have to say. It's not about you, it's about him. Even in your own personal narrative, Jesus is the main character. And our part of the story is gloriously the same as everyone else's. Can I say that one more time? Our part of the story is gloriously the same as everyone else's. That once we were enemies of God, but today, through the power of Jesus Christ, we are presented without blemish, and get this, free of accusation. There is nothing to be said about us. There is only something to be said about Jesus. I don't know what I will accomplish in my life. I certainly hope that God will do things for me. But the story of Jesus is way better than any story I could tell about myself. Amen? Amen. Everybody feels very far away today. So it, I don't know, uh, I, was, I was having a conversation this morning with someone about Christmas and um, Christmas uh, it, it can be a stressful time of year and um, I want to just take a moment to say thank you for those, you may not all be aware of this, but my mom had a very difficult week this week. She broke her leg on Monday and um, she had a stent put in yesterday because she had a 87% blockage in one of her arteries. It's been a really tough time for my parents over the last like three to six months. And so I, yeah, if I would just like to ask if you would just keep them in your prayers and they need uh, encouragement and, and help and uh, we're, we're all going to be together at Christmas, so which will be interesting.
Um, <laughs> but hopefully we'll, we'll get to spend some good time together. Uh, what have we learned uh, over the last several weeks in looking at the life of Jesus? Now, hopefully, if you've been here with us and you've been doing uh, taking this little journey with us, you've actually learned some things that are quasi-new to you. Because the story of Jesus is one that we are so accustomed to. It's one of those stories that I think we approach uh, with sort of a preset notion of what everything already is and what everything already means. But we saw, we've seen that towards the end of the life of Jesus, there are four different points of view that are all intersecting. And the first one, the main one, is Jesus himself. Um, he's the main character and driving force behind this part of the story. And the story really is about him and what God is doing through him and him answering God's call for his life. Then there are disciples who are his closest followers. They've seen and heard everything that uh, he's, he's done and said and they are uh, along for this ride. Then there are the, the religious leaders who so far in our story have sort of been on the peripheral of things. Um, they're watching, they're disapproving, but they're kind of waiting to see what's going to happen uh, with this whole Jesus thing. And then there's everyone else who they are also interpreting all that they see and hear from Jesus. And, and so all of these points of view, all of these things are circling around Jesus, particularly as he comes to Jerusalem for the last week of his life. And when he goes to the temple and when he's teaching in the city and when he's doing all of these different things, all of these parties, which have been sort of outside and orbiting around him, are now all stuck together in this one big place. And it's clear that each point of view, each perspective, has a different idea as to what's actually going on. Jesus comes to Jerusalem knowing what? That he's going to die that he's going to the cross. Uh, the disciples have gone to Jerusalem with Jesus, thinking what? This is the time where we go big, right? This is, we're, we're at the capital city, we're at the place where people worship God. This is where Jesus becomes Jesus. And then you have the religious leaders who really are getting, you know, they've got the sweaty palms at this point. You know, they're, they're getting very, very nervous um, because they don't know exactly what Jesus is going to do. And to them, Jesus is such a wild card. He's such a wild card. And then you have everyone else. And as we learned a couple weeks ago, which is a little bit surprising, in, in part because of how we read the crucifixion story. But everyone else is starting to believe more and more in Jesus. And... The longer the religious leaders wait to do something about him, the worse things get. I don't know if you remember this from a couple of weeks ago, but <clears throat> the people all know that the religious leaders do not approve of Jesus, but they're not doing anything about it, which makes people think, oh, well, maybe they've changed their mind about him, or uh, maybe he really is the Messiah. And the longer they stay silent, the more people fill the silence. You know what that's like? Right? So they start to speak into this place. And 
it becomes sort of this scene of absolute kind of chaos with all these ideas colliding with people. They think these things. Other people think these things. They're not getting it. They're not getting the whole message, even if Jesus has clearly spelled it out for them. Um, so here's kind of what happens. The religious leaders, which I know I, I really don't. Um, this is my personal personal note here. I don't like calling them the religious leaders. It just feels like, a, but I don't know kind of what else to call them at this point of the story. Uh, and it is what the Gospels do say about them. So the religious leaders, um, they start to become genuinely concerned because, number one, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he comes in with this kind of giant processional and parade. And that's going to draw the attention of Rome. And Rome, who kind of runs the area, if they feel like there is going to be some sort of revolution that's going to spring up, Rome is going to take action against Jerusalem, against the Israelites. So they're monitoring this and thinking, this is getting more and more dangerous every second. Not just for them and their power and their sort of own corner of the world, but for the nation as a whole. And they're starting to wonder, what are we going to do about this? Well, they finally decided that they had to do something about Jesus, and so the leaders decided to take proactive steps to get this ball rolling. And they approach, or Judas, they hook up with Judas, and they offer him money to betray Jesus. Now, clearly, as we saw last week, when Jesus went to the garden and did these things, Jesus understands where he's going. He understands what's happening. And he also understood, though, the difficulty of the path that had been laid out in front of him. He asked God, will you let this cut pass? Will you change these things? But ultimately, he bends his will to God's will and he is ready to go. And in this time of chaos and confusion, in the time of all of these different things happening, it's important for us to remember one very just simple idea. Okay? And we've said this a lot through the story, but it is never going to be more strikingly true than when we look at what happens next. Who is writing the story? God is writing the story. Now, that becomes particularly interesting because, remember, we have these four groups, Jesus included, we have these four groups who are all colliding now into some great form of action. Something is going to happen. Something is going to give. And it's easy... I think for us, when we look at the story then to say, well, this is what's driving it, or that is what's driving it, or this is what's happening. But we have to remember, God is writing the story. Now, here's what's really fascinating. If God is writing the story, he seemingly allows the villain and those he sent Jesus to save to take over the narrative so that he can have accomplished what he wants to have accomplished. Do you get that? God is writing it, but he allows the most unlikely of sources to take over this part of the story so that he can accomplish what needs to be accomplished. Okay? We're going to get to this here. 
Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, what the story has done this week is it's uh, interlaced um, basically the whole account of the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus, and so we are going to be jumping around quite a bit. Um, my own fault, I forgot to publish the uh, Bible app this morning, but it will be up later this week, or, or later today even, if you want to see uh, if you want to see that. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to be in Matthew, John, Luke, and, and in Mark even a little bit. So Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 42. Jesus is in the garden, and he's praying, and he's gone to his disciples that have gone with him, and he says, keep watch. He goes to see them. They've fallen asleep. He tells them to wake up, and he's going to go pray again. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. From John chapter 18, verses 4 through 11. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? And then from Luke 22. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple, guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Okay. It's kind of interesting when you look at the events um, from different perspectives, but all in line like that. And we have to ask the question... Again, what has brought things to this point? So forgive me if I'm being redundant, but let's look at this one more time. The Jewish leaders had decided to do away with Jesus, but they had a problem with doing away with Jesus. We understand the motivation, but there was an issue that they had to face. Remember, Jesus was getting more and more popular. More and more people liked him. And, and their problem was they wanted to take him and arrest him but they didn't want to do it when he was in the middle of a crowd of people that loved him. Because suppose that they march in there to grab him, what could potentially happen? A riot. So they don't really want to do this. They don't really want to handle it that way. They had decided a long time ago to do away with Jesus, but when you read the gospel stories, it will it'll often say either they didn't have opportunity or Jesus will say, 
uh, or the writer will say Jesus' time had not yet come. And so there's this idea that they've been wanting something to happen, but it, ju- it hasn't been the right time. But moreover, it hasn't been the right time because God hadn't decided it was the right time. Some things needed to happen first. So Jesus had many supporters among the common people, and it was feared that if they were to go grab him again in a crowd, that they would fight on his behalf. Which actually helps answer a question which has bugged me for a long time. Why does Judas need to betray Jesus? It seems like a completely unnecessary, redundant idea. Uh, They've come to arrest him. Do they know who Jesus is? Of course. Of course they know who Jesus is. Um, What Jesus did, though, uh, was he provided an opportunity for Jesus to be arrested, or what Judas did was he provided an opportunity for Jesus to be arrested quietly. Um, Remember that Jerusalem, what was going on in the city of Jerusalem at this time? It was Passover. Jesus had just celebrated Passover. So there could be as many as 100,000 extra people in the city at this time. So what they really need is someone to say, this is where Jesus is going to be at this time. And it's even better if this place and this time is both remote and a place where he will be mostly by himself. So this is what Judas offers to them. I will give you Jesus when and where you want him. And it's the middle of the night when they come and they take him. But I I want us to also think that there's, there's another element we need to keep in mind here. Okay? And that is this. I think it's important that betrayal is a part of the story. It's, it's an important concept um, in the death of Jesus. And it's important for this reason. Jesus came to this place to redeem those who had ultimately betrayed and rejected God. And if everything is going to stay true to form... When it comes time for Jesus to die, betrayal kind of ha- needs to be a part of it. Because this is who we have been, who humanity has been throughout the entire story. And as much as we may puzzle over what Judas does, he's really just being like most people we've seen throughout the narrative. True? People that have been blessed by God or have been given something and who still choose something else. So, Jesus came to this place to redeem those who had ultimately rejected God. The religious leaders, who supposedly knew God better than anyone, were leading the charge to stop him. And one of his own makes it possible for them to get Jesus in the way that benefits them the most. All of this together kind of takes the shine out of humanity, which, is, which needs to happen. Which needs to happen. But, and here's what's even more strange... I love it. I love the strangeness of it. There is one more character that we cannot ignore. Because it's been a little while in the Gospels, but Satan comes back into the story. 
Now, remember, there are basically three main characters. There is God, and what does God want more than anything else? To have a relationship with his people. There is Satan, and what does Satan want more than anything else? To break relationship between humanity and God. And humanity is in the middle, being pulled one direction or the other, making different decisions at different times. So Satan re-enters the story. And let's think from Satan's perspective for a moment. Okay? At the beginning of the Gospels, Satan approaches Jesus when Jesus is in the wilderness. And what does he try to do? He tempts Jesus, and he tempts him to use the power that God has given him to claim his own place in the world. And Jesus refuses each of these times. So get this, at the beginning of the story of Jesus, Satan is trying to intervene in a way that he thinks is most effective. If I can turn the Son away from the Father, then it's going to mess up whatever it is that the Father is doing. But he doesn't understand Jesus. And he doesn't understand what's going on. We get to the end of the story. And the scripture tells us that Satan prompted Judas to betray Jesus. And then, when they're sitting around the table, it says that Satan enters Judas and takes him, leads him to uh, to the religious leaders, and that's where he betrays them. Now, what is so weird about that? Who is writing the story? God is writing the story. Who is trying to force the action? Satan is. Why? Why? Because he thinks that if this ball starts rolling, what will happen? He thinks that the death of Jesus is going to destroy God's relationship with man. And more people will turn away because of this. So Satan gets excited about the opportunity to intervene in such a way that is going to stop whatever it is that God is doing. So, Who's writing the story? So, does Satan unknowingly help God get to where God wanted to go? Yes. And he does it enthusiastically. Which is just so fascinating. (laughs) That thought that he acts, Satan acts, in order to destroy something but he did not understand what was really going on. So, they've come, they've confronted Jesus, they uh, arrest him, Peter tries to be super brave, and he cuts off an ear, Jesus replaces the ear, and uh, Jesus is going to be taken off uh, to the next part. So let's get back to the plot to kill Jesus. Um, The plan to kill Jesus centered around what might seem to us as a strange idea, but Jesus was brought forward by the Jews as a political criminal, as an insurgent or, or a revolutionary. So, Matthew chapter 26. Now, you may or may not know the answer to this question, but throughout the trial and 
um, and the crucifixion of Jesus, there is a term that comes up a whole lot and a whole lot more than we've seen in the you know, other parts of the Gospels. Okay, I want you to see if you can think of what that term would be. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any though many false witnesses came forward. Which that, think about that for a second. They're looking for false evidence. They have false witnesses. However, I guess the false, like it's a double negative and none of it works. It doesn't, it's not quite explained. But then finally two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Like, like they don't really know. Like, have you heard what this person said about you? How are you going to answer this charge? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, From now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Okay. Here's what is so fascinating to me about this particular element. Um, Remember, the religious leaders decided that Jesus had to be killed because he was getting too popular and they were afraid he was going to be viewed as a revolutionary by Rome. If Rome saw him, then they would come and there would be some sort of battle and Israel would be squashed. So they arrested him before Rome could take notice that he was a potential threat. All right? The problem is, they don't have a reason to arrest him. They really don't. So they're bringing forward all of these false witnesses and they're not getting enough from them to prove that this guy should be put to death. Because what is it that they actually need in order to move this thing forward? He has to have made... We have a couple of options. He has to have made some sort of threat, right, that they deem is serious enough, but that's really not the most important one for them. He has to claim something. What is it that they want him to claim or for others who have heard him say? They say, here, the Messiah or the Son of God. They need him to claim that. Now, the term that I said which is the one that becomes most important? Are you ready for it? King of the Jews. This is where this is going. They want him to admit to being the Son of God, the Messiah, and ultimately the King of the Jews. Their whole plan hinges on this. 
that he say this or someone can witness that he say this, said this or did any of those kinds of things. So, Jesus doesn't admit to anything. And he does such a Jesus-y thing. That Jesus. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And what does he say? You said it. But let me tell you something else. And, and it's interesting. He talks about the Son of Man being at the right hand of God. He never says who the Son of Man is. So even in this moment, he's not claiming... Uh, although, uh, he is, but not in a way that is they can use against him. But instead, they overreact to the notion that Jesus knows something about this, right? And then they decide, oh, we're ready to kill him. And then, because this is how things go towards the end, what do they do to Jesus next? They just start beating the snot out of him. They're, they're kicking him, they're punching him, they're doing all of these things. So he doesn't admit to anything, but they believe that what they've heard so far, and particularly if they can present it in a compelling way, is enough for Rome to then say, all right, we'll take care of this guy. So they go to Pilate, who's the Roman governor, and, and they go to Pilate as if they're doing Pilate a favor. Okay? As if, as if look what we have brought to you. Look what we have brought to you. From John chapter 18, starting in verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and said, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Because what is he already recognizing? Something is off here. He asked for the charges and what do they say? Of course he's a criminal. We brought him to you. But they saw him and said what he's done. Okay? So Pilate says, this is your problem, not mine. Um, and they say, but we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus said about the kind of death he was going to die. We want this guy dead. We can't kill him. Legally, we need you to kill him. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, and here it is, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Well, what is truth? retorted Pilate. With this he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Quote. And he, I think he probably did air quotes as well. They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. 
Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. I, I feel like I need to like sit down to just wrap my mind around this thing. It, it, it's, it's where things get very interesting. He was taken to Pilate as an insurrectionist, but he wouldn't make any sort of claims that support Rome putting him to death as a political prisoner. He's still not doing it. And even when he's asked about his kingdom, he talks about a kingdom that is not here. So guess what? He's not even saying... This kingdom that Rome has is actually my kingdom. And he also doesn't say, I am king of the Jews. He told the, the Jews to take care of it. They say they can't because they want him dead and they'll be, they will be violating God's law if they kill him with no reason. So Pilate asked him the question, are you king of the Jews? Now, if Jesus were to say yes, then he would have been claiming authority over Rome and he would have been this revolutionary. But Jesus said, I didn't say that. Did someone tell you that? Or is this a conclusion you came to on your own? And so it comes down to this bottom line. Jesus has been brought forward to Rome as some sort of dangerous figure. And all it takes is a few moments of Pilate talking to Jesus to understand that Jesus is not dangerous. And then in a moment of just supreme, delicious irony, he says, I'll release someone to you. Do you want me to release Jesus? Which he had to know the answer to that question. No, we don't want you to release Jesus. Instead, give us who? Barabbas, who is in jail for doing what? For trying to start a revolution. So, <laughs> so they force Jesus in as a revolutionary and they take an actual revolutionary out so that Jesus can be killed. Weird. Right? Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay. Good. Uh, John chapter 19. <clears throat> then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find now no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. Now, what is Pilate doing and why? They have brought him and said he is king of the Jews, which Pilate has determined he's not, and he's not even claiming that. So instead... He dresses him up in this robe and puts this fake crown on his head. And we've always viewed this as this is because they're torturing Jesus, which they are. He was flogged, which is an awful thing to describe, which we're not going to do today. And then he's put out, but get this, he's put out as this mocking idea of what they have said he is. Who is he making fun of? He's making fun of them. Here's your king. They are not going to be denied, however. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. 
As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? This is where Jesus grins a little bit. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Okay. Pilate is not a sympathetic character. And we shouldn't find him to be. What he is, is a confused character. Because think about this. He was woken up early, and he was brought this homeless dude who's beat up, and they're saying, this guy believes he's going to overthrow Caesar. He doesn't see it. He mocks them. He does these things. He's going along with it. And then he hears that this guy has said, has said, which we haven't heard him say this yet, right? At least in the trial, he, he's the son of God, which then makes Pilate wonder, like, what is, what is going on here? And he goes back to Jesus and said, you need to work with me on this. And what does Jesus say? You're not writing the story. God is writing the story. God is writing the story, not, not you. So Pilate turned him over. And here's what's... Why did Pilate have to turn him over to be crucified? Why did he have to do that? Because if he doesn't, what's he going to have on his hands? A riot. <laughs> He's going to have a revolution on his hands, of people who are so angry at him because he's not sticking up for Caesar, who they say is their true king. So now he had to turn Jesus over to be crucified. The, the crowd, this crowd, they are now fully embracing the lie. And they respond with this, we have no king but Caesar, which is this moment of like, see, we're being loyal. Are you going to be loyal? Are you going to do what you're... We're doing what we're supposed to. Are you going to do what you're supposed to? Can we go over your head? Can I speak to a manager, please? So he turned him over because if he didn't, there would have been a riot. Now, as far as it went for Jesus himself, something we need to, to see here about him is that he is alone in all of this. He's alone. From Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 55. 
This is when Peter, he's waiting outside to see what, what's going on. And when some there kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, replied Peter. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Now, Judas has already betrayed Jesus, but there's something really important about Peter denying Jesus. Peter in particular, who has been the most vocal disciple it's Peter. Who has been the one who has claimed loyalty through anything? It's Peter. Who's the one who tried to fight Jesus' way out of an arrest? It's Peter. If anyone was going to stick by Jesus' side, it was going to be Peter. It was going to be Peter. And yet Peter did not stick by his side. So when Jesus goes to the trial to be arrested and he goes to the cross who is with him no one no one is with him no one was standing up for him no one was trying to come between jesus and the cross everyone even his closest circle were in some way responsible for allowing this to happen and in the final act, we get to see the cruelty of man played out in all of its awful glory. From Mark chapter 15. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourselves. Save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those, who, those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now think about this for a second. Those things that the, the people are saying, who does that sound like? When Satan tempted Jesus, what was he telling him to do? If you are the Son of God, turn this rock into a piece of bread. If you are the Son of God, jump off this building and the angels will catch you. He was trying to get Jesus to be an inappropriate version of himself. Why? Because he could. The things that the people are saying to him at the cross, if you are the Messiah, then take yourself down. If you are the Messiah, if you're the Messiah, then heal yourself. And if Jesus had done those things, what would have happened? He would have put his will in front of what? The will of God. If Jesus had listened to Satan, he would have put his will in front of the will of God. 
He is tempted again on the cross to grasp who he is and what is the test that he has to face that he won't do it. Because whose plan is he following? He's following God's plan. From Luke 23. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And again from Luke 23, starting in verse 44. It was, about, it was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Matthew 27, starting in verse 46. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on his staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split. And the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came up out of the tomb after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, They beat their breasts and went away, but those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Jesus was alone on the cross. In fact, at one moment, he turns and says to God, where are you? And what is clear from Jesus' words is that God is not there with him which brings so many other things into sharp focus. Remember, Jesus didn't want to go this way, but he did. And remember that he had the power to stop it at any point, and he didn't. And in the end, we're told here in Matthew that he gave up his spirit. Why did Jesus give up his spirit? It's not because it was time to die. In fact, Jesus died exceptionally fast for how crucifixions normally went. Why did Jesus give up his spirit? Because it's what God had called him to do. Why did God call him to give up his spirit? 
so that Jesus, by giving up his spirit, would defeat death. He would defeat death. The final word in life, the thing that no one can overcome, death, Jesus gives up himself so that out of this place of awful betrayal, loneliness, darkness, pain, suffering, and agony, life will come forward. There was something that no one really understood, you see. And maybe couldn't understand about the cross. What they couldn't understand is that the cross was written into the story by God himself. And God used humanity's determination to reject him for his own purposes. He used the enemy to help get Jesus to the cross. And for as much as people wanted to send a message within this narrative, God had a message to send as well. You are not writing this story. I am writing this story. And of course we know this because we know how the story ends, but in the cross we see a great shift from man being responsible for their own fate to God stepping in and changing everything that the story is about because he willingly gives up his spirit that we that we might have life that we might have life Jesus does this because God planned to be our overcomer who gives us victory who does not hold our faults against us we don't even have any accusations in front of us. Amen? Amen. Because Jesus gave himself up. Praise God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for Jesus. We, it's hard to wrap our minds around um, the whole story and, and how it happened. And God, it's hard to begin to appreciate what Jesus had to go through. And it's incredible to see how you work these things out. But God, as much as we don't understand, may we grasp this morning that Jesus died for us to show your love, to give us victory over the things that would keep us from you. God, your great desire throughout the story is that we would be your people. And in Jesus, you make that possible in a way that had never been before. Thank you, God, that we are washed clean of all of our faults and our mistakes. Thank you, God, that there is no accusation that can stand against the sacrifice of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have any need for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you in an amazing way, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.